Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of Literary Disco, the Train Dreams episode. We will begin with our usual bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. Then we will delve into Dennis Johnson's very short but very cool novella, Train Dreams, which was published earlier this year. And then, at last, we will judge a book by its cover. A game which has nothing to do with judging a book or its cover. But rather, I will give the first sentence of a book to Todd and Julia and we'll let them riff on what they think the book is about. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me today are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Welcome, you two. Hello. Hi. So, who's uh, pulled something down from their bookshelf that wants to go first? Uh, I am happy to go first. So, uh, as usual, I, there's a there's some backstory here. Um, so, <laughs> Which has nothing to do with a bookshelf or a book. Well, in this case, it actually uh, sort of does have something to do with the bookshelf, and I, I have a book to talk okay. about. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. my lovely wife, Wendy, and I went to a bed and breakfast in... Um, this beautiful mountain town called Idlewild, which is in Southern California, not far from where we live in the uh, greater Palm Springs region. Um, And this uh, bed and breakfast was called the Strawberry Creek Inn. And it's this beautiful bed and breakfast with yummy uh, breakfasts. And uh, the proprietors of the place are really nice. They'll sit and they'll chat with you the entire time. It's like being in um, some sort of English... um, not period drama set in a bed and breakfast run by two gay black guys. Um, So (laughs) the entire um, bed and breakfast is filled with books. There's just books everywhere, all over the place. In the common area, there's stacks and stacks of books. There's bookshelves. There's baskets of books in all of the rooms. There's stacks of books next to the bed. Um, And also, which was really cool, uh, and then sort of freaked me out, is that in the bed and bre- in the rooms, there's a, 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 a log book of everyone who's ever stayed there saying, oh, I had a great time. Thanks for having us here. But the, the thing that sort of That's creeped so me out fun. about that, I though, was like I'm reading every one of them, and they're like, oh, I had a great time here on our anniversary. I had a great time here on our anniversary. I'm laying in the bed reading this. I'm like, so many people have had sex right here. <laughs> this is beginning <laughs> to creep me out a little bit. Is this your bookshelf revisit? Well, is so, this the book? The bed is the book. He was revisiting the bed. So that was sort of freaking me out, and I was like, I better find something to read. So I went out into the little common area, and I was just sort of poking around, looking around for stuff. And I found this old pulp uh, paperback that just looked absolutely absurd called, and I'll, I'll put a link to this up on our Facebook, called Forward Gunner Ash. And uh, by <laughs> is Gunner Ash somebody's name? Yeah, I love it. So the cover oh, says um, generals Glory Hunter and Goldbricks, a German GI's grudge fight with the Hitler war machine. And then on the back it says, "All quiet on the Russian front." Dot dot dot. Until the lieutenant fell in love with a beautiful spy. Dot dot dot. The corporal organized a thriving black market empire. Dot dot dot. The enemy smashed at the tottering Wehrmacht, dot, dot, dot. The captain commandeered a truckload of showgirls, dot, 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 and... Oh, no! Yes, I know. And gunner... <laughs> truckload of showgirls? <laughs> <laughs> How many times do you have a truckload of showgirls? Oh, my God. You'd be surprised. And then finally... <laughs> why are they in a It happens truck? a lot. It happened a lot during the war. I don't the understand there why were a they're lot in a truckload. Truck. <laughs> 
Uh, and then finally, Gunnar Osh had to pick up the pieces. Still fighting it out with the pompous brass and Nazi fanatics, the hero of the revolt of Gunnar Osh, Ash, keeps on with his struggle to stay sane and human in the nightmare of war. So I thought this is going to be some sort of just absolutely crazy, you know, Nazi novel about, you know, I, I didn't know what it was. So I said, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start reading it. And it turns out, and I'm almost done with it, it turns out that it is an extraordinarily entertaining and funny novel about sort of a common man, Gunnar Ash, who has, you know, because he's German, has been conscripted into the Nazi war machine. But there's no actual fighting in the book. He's just, he's a foot soldier who hates everything about being a foot soldier and doesn't believe in anything. And he's just part of it, um, which oh, is pretty cool. amazing. But there's also just some really beautiful writing in it. So this is a just a little bit. <laughs> this is not in any way where I thought this revisit. Well, it's was not going. anywhere where I thought the revisit <laughs> was going to go either when I picked up the book. So there's this bit where uh, this corporal, the corporal who um, organized a thriving black market empire, returns home, and he says, from what he had read in books, he knew that this was a great moment. But the extraordinary thing was, it didn't now seem like one. Quite the contrary, in fact. Instead of elation, he was aware only of a growing feeling of anxiety. This started somewhere in the region of his heart and spread slowly out toward his stomach. Well, here he was, but what next? And I, I read like paragraphs like that, and I think, well, that, that's, just, that's just good stuff right there. And yeah. it was... That's kind of Hemingway-esque. It, it's yeah. really Hemingway-esque. But there's also these moments of high comedy that exist throughout... Um, so I, I became obsessed with this guy, Hans Helmut Kirst, who uh, is Helmet. the author. Helmut, yes. H-E-L-L-M-U-T. Because um, uh, I, I had never heard of him. And this book came out in 1956. Um, and apparently he, um, you know, he wrote like 30 novels. Um, he was you know, one of the best-selling writers of his time. He died in 1989, and when at the time of his death, he had 12 million copies of his books in print. Um, wow. And they'd been translated into 78, or I'm sorry, 28 languages. Um, he'd won um, the Edgar Award. They turned uh, one of his books into um, a Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif film, uh, The wow. Night of the Generals, oh, cool. um, which I had heard of but I'm not familiar with. So he was apparently just this treasure of literature who, you know, wrote these pulp paperbacks. And it seems like this is such a great um, reason to read widely and just to pull down stuff that looks like garbage. Because once in a while mm -hmm. you might find something good. Yeah, I agree. Really yeah. good. I agree. Yeah. Okay, I'll go next. Um, I have sort of a double uh, endorsement here. So, well, here's something about me. Every time that I buy books at a bookstore, I usually end up buying, like, I almost always end up buying three books, two respectable books of some nature, and then one <laughs> mystery, thriller, or just, like, $5 paperback. And 
Always. May I recommend forward gunner <laughs> yeah, ash? Exactly. I mean, like they're not always bad, but I always feel like, oh, here's my right. fun book, but I'm still a literary person, so let me buy these other novels. But or oh, or nonfiction so books. Yeah. Yes. But I always <laughs> read the quick read first. Like always. Of course. <laughs> so I right. have a huge It's like stack. eating dessert before the meal. <laughs> yeah, but then sometimes you never eat the meal. So I have like huge stacks <laughs> of like amazing books and then I have my like shame corner, which I believe I've referred to many times <laughs> of books I have read already. So, but sometimes the books I, I pick are really good, and I end up reading a lot of like mysteries and thrillers this way that are really good. Like, which is how I read um, all the ton of French books and all that good stuff. I'm like, let me just find a mystery that is good. So, my latest uh, endeavor into this was uh, I was in Seattle and I bought um, this book called The Sherlockian, and it is a double. Uh, this isn't really my revisit because I haven't finished reading it yet, but we'll get there. So it's it's a mystery, but it's a it's two things. It's the history of why Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes, hmm. and it's a fictional mystery of someone figuring this out. And then they they jump back and forth in time and all that good stuff. So it's really good, um, and it's really fun and a summary read. But it also me back to the original um, Sherlock Holmes stories. And have you guys spent a lot of time reading Sherlock Holmes? No. no. It is so good. It is, I mean, it's just the most well-written, weirdest work that I've ever read. It like It's completely in the category of completely fun and also really intelligent. I mean, I studied it in college and all this turn-of-the-century, you know, wandering the streets of London, deductive reasoning stuff. It just, it really holds up and it's so weird. And uh, so my third part, <laughs> well, it is, it's really strange. And my third part of this endorsement is something that I don't, you guys have probably experienced or at least heard about, but the BBC did a, a TV adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that's current. Love it. Love it. It is the best thing. It's the best show on earth. And I love that dude. Bumber Snatch Cumber Blue, what was his name? <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict That's Cumberbatch. It. <laughs> and, uh. Bumber Snatch! <laughs> Um, uh, I saw Bumbersnatch in concert with the Dingle Chode. (laughs) When Greg and I were watching, Greg, dear listeners, Greg is my boyfriend, when we were watching uh, Sherlock Holmes, the BBC thing, the the first half hour of the first episode, I stopped it and I was like, this is my favorite thing that I've ever seen or experienced. It's so amazing. And it's so it's a modern day adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, which is better than any period piece because what I like about the show is what I uh, love about the books, which is that Sherlock Holmes himself is completely (laughs) sociopathic and not at all endearing in any Mm -hmm. way. He's just obsessed with information and Watson is this damaged figure who's just along for the ride. Sherlock Holmes is just a really interesting world to get into because, and the Sherlockian is partly about this, there's the people who love Sherlock Holmes think of him as a real person. It's very, it gets into weird fan fiction territory, but um, that's okay. And people know all the details of all the mysteries and how it all fits into his life. And there's like these conflicting societies of people who study Sherlock Holmes and people who study Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and they're at war with each other. You know, they they have different points of view on what is interesting about it and, you know, 
who's more important, really? Like, is Sherlock mm. Holmes a larger figure in the world than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle thought yes, which is, you know, a big part of the reason why he killed him off. He was just so frustrated that people thought of him as more real than himself, the author. All right. What do you okay. have, Ryder? Well, I'm sticking with the detective theme uh, in a weird way. Uh, but so there was a couple, this is actually not a super positive bookshelf revisit. This is a book that sits on my bookshelf and every time I look at it, I want to scream <laughs> and I'll explain why. Is there a photo of T.C. Boyle in a turtleneck on the cover? <laughs> then I would actually burn the book. This is, uh, okay, so do you remember a couple years ago when there was an explosion of Roberto Bolaño books uh-huh. coming mm-hmm, out? Mm-hmm. Because they were all getting translated? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I decided at that point, because everybody was reading it, loving it, and giving awards to the Savage Detectives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I decided to read this book, and I opened it up, I started reading it on a plane, and the first 125 pages or whatever, which is section one of the book, the book's divided into three sections, was some of the greatest writing I had ever read. I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, this is this is why Roberto Bolaño is, is who he is. This is why he's getting all these awards. This is why he's getting all this recognition. I love this so much. I hit section two of this book and it was like slamming into a brick wall. It was suddenly the worst written, most disjointed, horrific, mm. and I never finished the book. Mm. And so what happens is it opens with this great character, this narrator, and it's first person, and he's discussing the beginning of this new poetry movement. I think it's poetry. Yeah, it's a poetry. It's a new literary movement in Mexico City. Uh, Roberto Bolaño is actually Chilean, but it takes place in Mexico City. And um, it starts off, you know, he's, he's this young guy. I think he's like 17 or whatever. And he's just this wonderful character, and you get so drawn into his life and the relationships he's developing and the friends that he's surrounding himself with as they sort of begin this this literary movement. And then you hit the second section of the book, and no joke, there's over 30 narrators in the second right. section. So every two pages is a different narrator, and oh it's a God. different person that you've never met or that maybe got referenced once in the beginning section. And they're all looking back and reflecting from, I think, 40 or 50 years later from the first section, and suddenly the book makes no sense. Suddenly I don't care about anybody. It's like he decided to throw all story and character out the window and just focus on sort of theoretical ideas of literature and poetry and this movement that he was, this fake movement that he created for this book. And I hated it. And so I'm kind of putting this out there as a plea to our listeners or to you guys. I guess you guys haven't read it. But is, has, if anybody has read this book and can tell me that it's worth finishing everyone that, that i know who has read this book says you have to get past the second section <laughs> but the second section is 500 like pages long 200 pages yeah <laughs> right. it's the entire book it's the entire book i can't do it i was i i picked it up again today and i was like well and i started going through it again no i cannot it's supposed, it, to, be, it hits supposed to be remarkable you know though i think I, I frequently have problems with books that change point of view like that in rapid fire that it annoys me to the point that i can't get into the story and that right. all I see is the author, and I can't see the, the book the itself. Book <laughs> Just sit down. I don't know. Well, see, I felt this out. way about Infinite Jest. David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Yeah. I've tried to read it four times, and I finally, as much as I love him, just had to accept... I'm never going to finish this book. It is not good. It is not a good book. There is incredible writing within it. There's incredible sections. But the fact that I I care this much about finishing it and I can't, that's his problem, not mine. And that, like that's a bad, bad, poorly written book and a poorly edited book. And it's not that he's a bad writer. It's just that he went too far in one direction that was really a bad choice, made so a bad decision. if you believe that to be true, 
Now, and yeah. this is this is sort of an aesthetic question, just in general. And I, I ask myself this sometimes: <laughs> if you believe it's a horribly written book, and uh, why are you the minority? I'm not in the minority. No, most people don't read Infinite Jest. Most people most pretend people they've who, read Infinite Jest. Right, but most people who finish it, and I haven't, um, absolutely love it. Why? So why do you think? That, but I, I think about this a lot. Like uh, sometimes I'll. Or, I'll read something, or I'll or I'll watch something. And I'll think, oh, that was fucking terrible, and then, you know, I'll see sort of what the masses think, and I'll think, what? How is it that I have such a, a different opinion on the matter? It's it's Stockholm syndrome. They've been tortured <laughs> by this book so long, and then they've made it through it, and then they feel like they have to say they like it, otherwise they wasted how many hundreds of hours reading some piece of shit. Like I feel like I I, I honestly I feel that way about Infinite Jest because like I was introduced to Infinite Jest as a, as a I guess I was nineteen or twenty years old, and it was an older group of guys who like all wanted to be literary type people, but didn't actually they 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 looked at this book as like this huge mountain they had climbed and it was this mm-hmm. piece you know this point of pride yeah I've and those i think too. it's actually i think that there's a lot of that going in it's emperor's new clothes thing like it's like well i got through it and you should really do it too it's like no it's actually just bad you know because i don't feel that way about say like moby dick moby dick is long and hard to get through at points but i got through it because it pulled me through with character and story and the things that we read books for originally yes what we walk away with from a book ends up being theme and and language and all this great stuff that actually of course matters more but keeping me involved in a story keeping me turning the pages that's your primary job and if you can't accomplish that or if you throw that out the window and just want to say haha experiment screw you i'm going to i'm going to trick trick you and screw with your head and keep throwing new things at you well, then, at a certain point, exhaustion is going to set in, and I'm going to say, it's not worth it. I'm not getting enough out of this book well, to make that really journey worth it. Well, it's really interesting, though. Wait, wait. It's really interesting, though, because a lot of people say that about Moby Dick, and Moby Dick, in its structure and everything, was as experimental, in a way. I mean, I can't believe you say that plot pulled you through Moby Dick. There is no plot. It's... 600 pages. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, it's but very it opens... simple, and there's other But there's a whaling stuff. adventure. There's a guy going on a whaling journey to kill sure. a whale. There's yes. nothing more primal and basic. Now, wait, wait, once wait. you've established something <laughs> that primal and basic, then, yeah, go on for 300 pages about whales, and I will get off on the geekiness of whales. But in the meantime, you've hooked me. Yes. Using a fishing okay. metaphor, you've hooked me with a really great... <laughs> I believe you gas a whale, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I love Moby Dick as much as you do, but but my and point you know, I, I pretend make... to love Moby Dick as much as both of you. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, I I think it's too much to say like this book is bad. Everyone knows this book is bad, and they're not seeing it. So with larger experimental books, sometimes I try to read them at one time, and then I come back to them at another point of my life or another point of my emotional state, and I'm you know, ready to read them or I feel like reading them at that time. You know, I don't think we acknowledge that often enough is, am I reading this at a time that makes sense for me or when is it particularly going to hit me? So maybe you're just not in the place of being able to read the Savage Detectives right now. Well, that's what I was saying about, that's what I said about Infinite Jest for, what, 10, 15 Mm -hmm. years. And then I finally, I think it was only last summer or two years ago, I was like, nope. 
I'm not going to do it. I've tried yeah. it four times now, and I always get to like page 400, and they're in, he's introducing more characters, and I've loved passages, but the whole book I can't. I just don't care enough, and I put it down, and I go back to not caring, and my life goes on. It's <laughs> just well, so I mean. I think hating the Savage Detectives, um, having not finished it, is a bold statement. Um, but there's plenty of things yeah. I've hated that I haven't finished, like um, anything involving cauliflower, um, for instance. Ryder, I think you should just do it. I think, I mean, I, I probably do this too often, but I, I really hate not finishing a book. And sometimes right. it gets to a point where I'm like, all right. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to read for a couple hours at a time. Like where when a book really starts to die for me is when I read it in like 15 minute snatches and I don't like it. You need to sit down and just read the thing. You can read 200 pages in what, like four hours. Do it. I'm going to throw this. I'm going to throw this out to our listeners. Then I want to hear votes. I want either people (laughs) that have read this book and tell me it's worth it. I think you should read forward gunner ash. (laughs) Wait, I want to open this even wider. Maybe we can make a little poll or something. Is that not... I don't think only people who have read it should tell Ryder whether or not to finish it. Should, it should, <laughs> no, everybody yeah, can. It be, if, people who just want to know if it's worth reading or not. Yeah. yeah. All right. Or if you hit should a, I not invest in a book that I've already given a chance and and put down? Right. Like, sh- do you do that? Or do you just say, no, it's a bad book. You lost me. Done. Uh, Over. Like, and then I don't even have it on my bookshelf anymore. I burn it. <laughs> Well, wow. I'm not going to advocate that. So full of rage. Aren't, aren't you ever like, I didn't like this? Oh, it's just not my taste. It's not like, I no. hate this. Oh, no, no. It's a bad book. It's what, the worst Ryder book ever has, written. Ryder has one, has one single default. If I hate it, I'm going to find blame. No. <laughs> Basically, my life is hyperbole. Like, I, I, I only exist in hyperbole. Yes. So it's either the greatest book ever written or the worst book ever written. And in this case, it's the worst book ever written. All right. Well, please uh, write in, or maybe we'll create a poll on our website of some sort to whether Ryder should finish The Savage Detectives, uh, whether it's worth it. And, and are uh, you going to continue to speak of yourself in third person if, <laughs> if we have this uh, poll? Ryder did not enjoy The Savage Detectives. Ryder did enjoy the first part. And this is Ryder signing off for Ryder, Todd, and Julia. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for joining Ryder. Welcome back to Literary Disco. All right, now we're going to discuss the novella Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson is an author of, well, he's done a lot of short stories and plays and novels. He's most well known for his more recent novel, Tree of Smoke, which won the National Book Award in 2007. I was introduced to him uh, because of his short story collection, Jesus's Son, which was also a big, big cult hit and became a fantastic film. Yeah, also, good movie. Um, yeah, I actually really like that movie, and it, and it holds up in a way that a lot of 90s indie films don't. In the way that most but, of Billy Crudup's work does not. How yes. dare yeah, you? Yeah, Billy Crudup is amazing in Jesus' Son. <laughs> but um, he's a really great author, and you know, I'm, I'm, I have to say I've, I've been surprised by the, the arc of his career because I read Jesus' Son, which was really a, a series of interconnected short stories about a, a, a man struggling with drug addiction, and... I sort of made the the assumption that he would write a lot about, you know, 
down and out, drunk or druggy characters. I'd also read a novel of his called The Name of the World. It, both books that I had read were all about, you know, uh, urban decay and people dealing with drug addiction or alcohol. Most of his early books, you know, uh, yeah. Fiscadora and Requiem for a Hanged Man, mm -hmm. they're all, you know, guys at the dead end of their lives. Right. Drugged and, or but alcohol. But recently, you know, with Tree of Smoke, which I loved and is an incredibly thick way too long but wonderful book about the Vietnam War and now with this book Train Dreams he's really branched out and he's still maintained an incredible prose style and a very specific style and um I have to say I really loved this book um what did you guys think of it in general terms I uh, I really loved it too and I'd forgotten until I just read it um this past week that I had originally read it in the O. Henry, 2003, I think it was, 10 years ago, because originally it was in the Paris Review, the full um, story, and I think it's been changed some. Mm -hmm. But he here's the interesting thing about this book that I kept thinking about as I was reading it, um, and longtime listeners of Literary Disco um, will remember this book as well, Yes, is I was thinking about the book Bright's Passage by Josh mm -hmm. Ritter, and <laughs> how much better this is. That was what I was going to say. But when it was like his wife and daughter were in a cabin, there was a terrible fire. I was like, are you, is Ryder punking us? What is happening with this? <laughs> it's almost identical in places. Yeah. So let's just talk about what this story is. It's, it's a period piece. It's set in the early 20th century and it's set in the West and it's about a, he's kind of a logger, I guess, fundamentally, you, you know, he works odd jobs, but he mostly works in, in the logging industry and in the railroad industry early on in the book. And it just follows this man. His name is Robert Granier. And he's he lives on one acre with his wife and his child. And it's not really giving much away because the book is very short, but it happens within the first 20 pages that his wife and his child die. And it becomes the, 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 the story of his relationship with the land and different jobs that he takes trying to get over this death and this tragedy that occurs pretty early on in his life. Well, you know, you can't really give too much away about this book because the the truth is we get a summation of his life very early yeah. on. I think the second chapter of the book just tells us what happens in his life and what little happens in his life. And then the end also, similarly, not, not the actual end, pretty close to the end, we get, a, again, a sort of summation of what his life consisted of and how he died. And so I feel like... The, the story is not the facts of this person's mm -hmm. life um, because mm -hmm. there's not that much that happens. He right. sort of becomes a hermit, which is one of the questions mm -hmm. that, you know, is throughout the book. Is, is he a hermit or is he, you know, something more interesting or is there something deeper going on? The story is really about his sort of relationship with the landscape and his relationship with the West. Well, and also, it's also about his relationship with grief mm -hmm. and yeah. with memory. And, you know, I, I brought up Bright's Passage a moment ago, but it's, a, it's an apt comparison because of how Dennis Johnson is able to evoke the idea of the land being married to the person and the land having a role in that person's emotions related to whatever loss they have, which is something Josh Ritter tried to do in Bright's Passage and didn't really do. But there's also the spiritual quality of the land which I think is sort of fascinating, too. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite um, turns of language was, um, well, first of all, I should reveal right now. So I didn't read this book until today, 
And not only that, but I didn't have time to actually read it. So I listened to it on audiobook, which is like a completely different experience. And it was read by Pee Wee Herman, which made Tina it Tina Fey read it well. to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was very um, deep and grovelly. Anyway, so um, one of the things that I loved was, um, well, they talked about dreams several times, but uh, he says when right after his wife and daughter died, he dreams of both of them. And then after mm-hmm. a few nights, it's just his wife. And then eventually it's he just starts dreaming of the fire that he had just lit before he went right. to sleep. And that kind of meditation on grief and how you walk backwards out of it into the life you had before these people and you know just being with the land and with his land his landscape in that moment oh it's just so beautiful so beautiful I think, yeah i think another really interesting thing about this book and i think it's sort of interesting going back to what you said Ryder, about his evolution is that the, this book actually came before tree of smoke um yeah. mm-hmm. but he wrote tree of smoke over i think a 25 year period or something like that um, but that he, his writing style has completely changed from Jesus's son, which is his first book to this book. And what, you know, where Jesus's son was funny and, you know, was, uh, urban in the sense that it takes place in cities and things like that. Um, and this book is, you know, it's, it's almost a Western in, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that it's, you know, a man dealing with the land and whatnot. No, it's absolutely Western. I mean, that's what I, I was actually thinking. The people that it reminded me of are Jack London, mm-hmm. uh, Wallace Stegner, Bret Hart, John Steinbeck. You know, people that write about Western landscapes and the relationship of sort of poorer working men to the Western landscape. Um, and it's such... It, I, I was amazed that... And that's why I, I'm surprised that he had written this before because I sort of saw it as a, a newer evolution because it's such a leap forward to me because I love those kinds of writers. I love people that can write about a landscape and a person's relationship with it and make it interesting with... I mean, maybe there's like a page of dialogue in this whole book. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it's just him in the woods by himself. And to make that intriguing and interesting is... To me, such a feat. There, there's a really good review of this book by um, my friend David Ulan um, in the Los Angeles Times that appeared, I guess it was probably right when it came out, so uh, last summer, where he says of the book, um, it exists between terror and transcendence, between the wild and the tame. And mm. I thought, now that is the perfect examination of what this book is. I mean, it's interesting, writer, that you say that, you know, he makes nature come alive or whatever you just said that was not cheesy at all like that, but that it, that it imbued it with some kind of action because nature in Mm -hmm. itself is full of action. You know what I mean? That is Mm -hmm. creates so much of the natural drama in our lives. And one of the uh, lines I really loved towards the beginning was the, the trees and humans relationships to the trees. So he says, it was only if you left them alone that a tree might be a friend, cut a blade in them and you had a war. And it's just that absolute reversal of, you know, what a tree is to humans, you know, with only two seconds of difference between our human actions and what we're doing to the landscape. Well, I do think that this book has a huge theme about how we've sort of ruined the natural Mm -hmm. landscape. I mean, the fire, which I... We, I, we actually don't learn where the fire started from, but the fire that sort of decimates this landscape and, you know, and, and kills his, his wife and child. Um, and, you know, he's a logger. He talks about destroying the landscape constantly. And, and I, I think that there's a big theme here, which is, you know, which runs throughout a lot of Western writers about, you know, how we sort of had this opportunity 
and we felt the need to to take control of the landscape and to change the landscape and to use it in some way or another and that so much of the history of the west is the history of men being hired to run off into the wilderness mm -hmm. leave their families behind and destroy the wilderness and then how do we relate to that destroyed wilderness i feel like it still lingers in a lot of the western culture i mean you you go to places in northern california or Oregon and Washington State, which, which is where this book is set, and you still feel that. You still feel this sort of, these outpost gold mining uh, towns that have been left behind, or these beautiful groves of trees that have been chopped down, and, and it, it, it happens so fast, too, and I mean, that's what's amazing about this book, is like, you know, when one part, he, well, in the beginning, they're talking about horse and buggies and railroads, and then he rides in an airplane. It's this sort of miraculous, almost spiritual experience for him. And you realize, oh my God, in the in the course of this character's lifetime, when he dies in the 1960s, mm -hmm. he was a logger on the front lines of the wilderness in the West. And then he, you think about the 1960s, he was coming into town and watching television shows, which are still being played at Nick at Night. Like, isn't that just yes. crazy mm -hmm. to think about in the course of this person's... And, and the way that he approaches the landscape and the way that he meditates on just reality and the nature is so different than the way we do. And I felt like this book is one of the few books I've read by a contemporary author that makes me feel that way. You know, I, I feel that way when I read Steinbeck. I feel that way when I read Jack London or, you know, or Wallace Stegner, I think, who's another, he's more contemporary. But these are people that write about the way that the human interaction with landscape has changed dramatically. And, you know, they were writing about it while it was changing. And I just can't believe that Dennis Johnson was able to capture that sort of mental transition that this character makes in the course of his lifetime. Well, and the other interesting thing is is the um, the onset of the modern world on him. He, he mentions early on in the book, um, and of course, the book's called Train Dreams, so a lot of what happens in the book is, a, is centered around trains. Um, but he talks about seeing Elvis Presley on a train. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the the Chinamen who were brought in to build the railroads and all this stuff and how they, you know, um, were segregated and tried to kill them and all sorts of different stuff. And then all of a sudden, there's a scene where Elvis's train has broken down and he's standing there and, you know, he, he sees the train or he remembers seeing the train. And what a bizarre juxtaposition of the real world and what's basically the imaginary world of Elvis Presley arriving in town on a broken train. It, yeah. it, it's... The sweep of such a short novel is pretty amazing to me, and the mm -hmm. fact that there's not really a lot of scenes, um, I think, gives it that sense that you are in the head of someone who is um, a witness to history, mm -hmm. and it's just this weird juxtaposition of the Wild West and then, you know, uh, Hound Dog, yeah. basically. Mm. Well, you feel that you feel the rush of culture, like right. how twentieth century. I mean, you think about how much the twentieth century changed so rapidly, yes. and it kept changing to live rapidly. In that span mm -hmm. of time. Yeah. And it, I can't believe that a contemporary author is able to capture that mind state. Part of it is the amount of death and random illness and stuff that you 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 we take for granted nowadays. That if we're you know if we're in a family of you know five people, the chances of four of us dying are so slim but well very I mean, early on in this book the, the chance well, of all of them dying is pretty 100%. good <laughs> pretty good yeah 100 percent chance we're gonna die but you know what i mean that children are going to die in childbirth right. or whatever whereas in this book very early on you realize oh my god at any moment your entire family could be wiped out by the flu right i have i cannot let this go on any longer without recommending a completely amazing book that is very similar in a lot of ways um the book of ebenezer lepage 
Have you guys read this book or heard of it? No. Okay, uh-huh. so there's no. this... Forgive me if I'm repeating myself from another podcast, but there's this great publishing company, the New York Review of Books. Um, well, it's a, its own publication, but they also publish books that are amazing, but for whatever reason have fallen out of print. So this is a book. The book of Ebenezer LePage is written by a man who did live during that time period, and he lived on the island of Guernsey between England and France. And um, it is about how tourism changes the island and the wilderness hmm. of the island. And it right. is so unbelievable. That's interesting. Also yeah. in the brevity and uh, landscape theme, New York Review of Books also published two books by John Williams, Stoner, which Todd, I think Stoner is a that. great book. It's, Love that book. Again, yeah. really similar. It's really mm-hmm. short, and it's a man's entire life. And yeah, it's like 160 pages. It's really short. Yeah, this man only wrote three books, and they're all in wildly different genres. So that's like mm-hmm. academic fiction about a college professor. And then the other one is Butcher's Crossing, which is about the end of Western expansion, basically, and hunting bison. And it is so good i can't even tell you it's just so devastating all around you you like you must read these books however i will say that while just to offer a small counterpoint to what you guys are saying is i mean i did i love the language and i i really enjoyed the book but i feel like the archetype of like the solitary man in the West, ruminating is so... I mean, it's in all of the books I just mentioned. It's in so many movies. I mean, that is the Western. I would like mm-hmm. another point of view rather than the man who everyone dies around him and he is stately. He's a stately <laughs> hermit who is noble. You know, like the no, the noble hermit. The noble hermit. <laughs> and other Julia, stories. you need to read Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. That's about women. Okay. That's about women. It's about, actually about a contemporary person researching his grandmother who came to San Francisco, came to the West uh, in the 19th century. And it's all about women. And um, he, he's finding out that his grandmother had this relationship with another woman that might be a lesbian relationship. Oh. Not sure. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful evocation of sort of what it was like to be a woman in that time period. Um, and it's very well researched. Yeah, I will I will read that. But I don't just mean, like, I want it from the ladies' side. I mean that <laughs> no, I to, if you take the Western genre as a whole, it seems like every person in their mind was the most amazing, you know, stoic, noble person that ever existed. I mean, I but, really... But he, he's not... Stoic and noble. Yeah, I don't think this guy's noble at all. I mean, that's what, to me, is that it's an average everyman. I mean, it starts out with him trying to kill a guy. Yeah, you're right. It starts off with him trying to kill a Chinese person just for being Chinese, as as far as we can tell. He doesn't even know why. He just sees a brawl going on and joins in to try to kill this Chinese person. That's the opening of the book. And, you know, he's, he's alone also, not because he wants to live off the land, but because of his profound grief. So it's sort of different than, like, the, you know, the High Plains drifter, outlaw Josie Wales type thing where it's just this lone man on the western front you know metting out justice at the end of his gun this book is still really good but I want a I'm I am now afraid that I'm being convinced of the tone of this historical period and I'm not sure that everyone lived in that tone you know you know what I'm saying yeah Yeah. Uh, I have a question so there is something that happens near the end of this book that kind of is spiritual. Mm-hmm. In, in, there's like a mythic quality to a fairy tale ish mm-hmm. 
sort of element to this book, which I think took it out of a lot of the other sort of Western stuff that we've been talking yes, about. Yes, that was my favorite what part. What did you guys mm-hmm. think about this? Did you th- So you love that. I mean, do you Loved think we're it. meant to take that literally? Do you think that we're, that this, this book, that Dennis Johnson is writing a reality in which these sort of, sort of magical things happen? Or is he writing a book where we're supposed to believe it's all in this character's head and it's really just allegorical or... Well, I don't know. What did you guys think about this? I don't care if it was real or not. I loved it. That was my favorite part. Yeah, I mean, the the title of the book is saying, you know, these are hallucinations in yeah, one way that's or true. another. Good um, point. But I, I did find that I found it to be an odd moment in a, in a good way. I mean, I actually enjoyed it, too. But I, I found it, I, I thought that that sort of insertion of a supernatural mythical element, uh, you don't get that very much in in the western writers well you know, what's I mean, in- most of most of western writers are about realism and about humans interacting with nature as it really is and dealing with the sort of cruel cruelty of nature and the cruelty of other humans towards each other whereas i thought when the talking jesus horse showed up that that was a surprise oh no that was bright's passage that's right that was the other <laughs> that's forest right. fire that kills a wife and a child <laughs> i guess i'm just fascinated by the fact i mean i i think that as a literary culture um, American literature, for the most part, especially Western American literature, has been based in realism and trying to aim for realism in a way that, say, your Latin American authors never were, you know, where you have magical realism or surrealism or you have a sort of spiritual. And, and I think that it's a sign of a shift that somebody like Dennis Johnson can write a more porous Western novel. I, I think that that's a shift. I think I, I found that interesting because, you know, you never have those moments in, say, Steinbeck. You don't have those moments in Jack London. You don't have them in Bret Hart. Um, you don't have them in Mark Twain, even. You know, you don't have Well, people... you, you kind of have it in Jack London. I mean, if you look at To Build a Fire, I mean, it becomes really surreal as he's dying, you know? Um, so I think there's a little bit of that. But surrealism in American fiction is really something that's happened... Um, in the more so in the last 40 years post Vietnam. Well, I mean, Ryder, one thing I think that's interesting is like, I, I also think it's a really American conceit again to say, is this real or is this not real? I mean, we've gotten so far from mythological literature, I guess that we forget that the myths stand for real experiences in all Mm -hmm. cases. You know what I mean? So just wedding them back together, I think is completely natural human impulse i mean every fictional book that we read is a myth in its own way for our you're own blowing my experience. mind pastel it's julia pastel ladies and gentlemen just come in come in hardcore but you know what i'm saying right like i got it i do but i but there's always there's obviously a very clear difference between native american mythology where you know we, we there's a storytelling tradition that is obviously like coyote can walk and talk and coyote can also fly and sometimes jump into shadows or whatever you know there's this sort of porous like where's reality that's part of that storytelling tradition whereas english literature in america has always been based on uh not that kind of myth making yes i completely I completely understand what you're saying, but what I'm saying is even those stories are myths. I think our myths are barely even recognizable to ourselves as myths now. You know what I mean? Disney princess, myth. You know, like Mm. all kinds of tropes that we deal with all the time. 
So, I mean... There, there's another... There's a really good novel called Peace Like a River by Leif Anger. That's a Western, basically, as well. It's also very heavily surreal um, that you might want to take a look at, writer, if you're interested in that Yeah, sort of I thing. do, because I'm fascinated by this question. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Southern literature, for instance, got taken over a while ago mm-hmm. by the surreal. I think that you look at Toni Morrison, who we've talked about before. Oh, yeah. Her stuff always has this element, yeah. this sort yeah, of magical, realist element. And, you know, and... I think that, but I don't think Western literature has had as much of that. I just want to say that the last few lines about the um, the sound that I don't want to ruin, but there's a sound, and it talks about how the sound is essentially the ancestor of all these man-made sounds. Is just one mm-hmm. of the most. Wasn't that amazing? That's that one was of the amazing. Most one of the most beautiful I've passages read, I've read yeah. in a long time. Ever. Yeah. I was blown away by that. Yeah, this it, it's just a great passage about a human whale. Right. And he sort of links it to human progress or Western progress. He talks about how that that howl, that whale, becomes what we base locomotives on and the, the foghorns. The foghorn on ships. It's just beautiful. It's like and yeah, and I, I mean, I, it, it encapsulates the whole book in a moment where you just see the the progress that we've made in one century, sort of summed up. Yeah. I would not be surprised if you wrote that entire book just to make that observation because it was so amazing. Uh, thanks, guys, for uh, for reading this little novella and discussing it with me. You're welcome. Happy to do it. it it's always a joy to discuss great writing. Guys, we've read too many good books in a row. Yeah, we need to read a shitty book. Time to read a bad one. Bad. Sweet Valley, too? Yeah, it's time to go back to Sweet Valley. All right, welcome back to Literary Disco. This is Ryder Strong. I'm joined by Julia Pastel and Todd Goldberg. Hello, guys. Who's got the giggles, by the way? I think it's Julia. <laughs> Julia has the giggles a lot. People love your laugh, though. I get lots of fan email from people saying, I would just like an isolated track of Julia laugh. Julia's laugh <laughs> and some of her old socks. Yes, just her laugh and old socks is all we want. So we're going to do a judging a book by its cover. Is that the title that we've settled on? Judging by the cover? Judging by its cover? I don't know. Uh, Either way, the name doesn't make any sense, but uh, (laughs) I'm going to read the first sentence. Actually, I'm probably going to read more than the first sentence, more like a paragraph of three different books, and you guys are going to tell me what you can about the book, if you think you know anything about the book, and maybe just riff on what you think the book is about. Okay. I'm nervous. Selection number one. Clear your minds. Be ready. The North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance agent promised to fly from Mercy to the other side of Lake Superior at 3 o'clock. Two days before the event was to take place, he tacked a note on the door of his little yellow house. At 3 p.m. on Wednesday, the 18th of February, 1931, I will take off from Mercy and fly away on my own wings. Please forgive me. I loved you all. Signed, Robert Smith, insurance agent. Uh... I feel like I've read this. As soon as you start, the first line, I thought, oh, I know this. I've read this, but I don't know what it is. I also think it's interesting that Robert Smith from The Cure was a character in a novel. That's good. I think it's Death of a Salesman 2, but he crashes an airplane. Death of a Salesman 2. Exciting sequel. This time it's personal. I like it. I like it. It actually does have a sort of a Death of a Salesman vibe, of course, because he, he's literally killing himself. And, insurance he, yeah, agent. Um, yeah. 
I, however, I think it's a modern book. Um, I think it came out in the last, and by modern I mean last 30 years, because that's the last 30 years beginning. Okay, is this book, all right, so Lake Superior, that's a clue. Right. I think. So we know what region that it could be from or about. What do you think, Todd? I agree. We, we know he probably uh, survives because the book is talking about him on page one. Um, so that's a good sign that he's not going to be sort of like a lovely bones dead narrator. Gosh, uh, I think it's a book that looks at the um, revolution of a man through his business. And he comes to find by its conclusion that what he needs is to be home with the woman he always loved. I think it's a comic novel in which everything goes wrong as he tries to kill himself. And he reaches the same conclusion as in Todd's book. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a scene, a sex scene that's fumbling and strange in this book. All right. Well, you know, this one is a little bit of a cheat because it's actually kind of a non sequitur beginning to this book. Um, the book is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Oh, Whoa. I have read that book. Yeah. Yes. I figured you might have. And it, and it begins with this sort of, you know, weird idea of this guy killing himself by mm -hmm. trying to fly which really just plays into the story thematically because then uh, they introduce I think I think they introduce the main character on page nine um, and the, the the theme of flying and trying to fly and reaching the there's a song that they're constantly singing throughout the book oh sugar man done flying away mm -hmm. uh, sugar man done gone sugar man cut across the sky and that sort of song ends up uh, bringing the main character back to his hometown um, and investigating the 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 roots of that song lead to the roots of his family and his heritage and all that. So um, kind of a non sequitur beginning, but I just kind of loved the the image of this. And I also was reminded of Toni Morrison because she has a new book coming oh. out. And I'm super excited because I am like the biggest Toni Morrison fan and... Uh, I can't wait to read the new one. But this is one of my favorites. I think Song of Solomon might be my favorite Toni Morrison. It's either this or Jazz. Um, great I think books. Beloved is amazing. Yeah, Beloved's pretty amazing. I haven't read any Toni Morrison in a very long time. A really you know, long time. It's funny, I haven't heard about her in a long time. I feel like in the 90s and the early 2000s, like Toni Morrison was it. You know, like that was about as good as literature got to everybody. Right. And now it's, and I think everybody sort of came to accept that, and she's not that trendy anymore, and people don't talk about her. But the reality is, like, she is one of the best authors we have. Like, she is so good. Well, and you know what it also is, is that there was that period of time where um, Oprah, you know, basically turned her into a brand. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we knew about Toni Morrison as English majors and things like that, but for the wider population, Toni Morrison was not, you know, a big best-selling Costco author, right. you know what I mean? But then um, Oprah really turned her into that. And, you know, the other thing also is that you know, she's not a young woman anymore. Right. So um, I, I think her output has, has slowed quite a yeah. bit, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also she, she went to prison for five That's years for killing a man. That, she didn't. No, she's a wonderful human. She, uh, <laughs> she killed Ronald McDonald. Is who she killed. Selection number two. <laughs> and this one I'm going to have to put a blank in for someone's name because it will give it away. Ishmael. Call me Jeff. <laughs> Call me blank. <laughs> what is it, guys? All right, chapter one. 
He wasn't always a great magician. Sometimes he said he was the seventh magician in his family, the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Celtic sorcerers. Sometimes he claimed years of training at the feet of Oriental wizards. But his press releases never told the truth, that from the moment Blank first learned it, magic was not an amusement, but a means of survival. Hmm. Carter beats the devil? Yes. <laughs> Damn it, is that what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> it's a fantastic book by, by Glenn David Gold. And oddly enough, I just mentioned Alice Siebold a moment ago when I talked about the Lovely Bones, and he is married to Alice Siebold. Oh, it's a fantastic wow. book about magic and about charlatans and grifters. It is a great I book. I thought for a minute it was going to be that book that I have not read but I own that was really popular, Jonathan Strange and M. Norrell. Isn't that book about oh. magic, too? Oh, yeah. 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 I haven't yeah, read it either. That's a great book. I use it as a doorstop. It's huge. Yeah, Yeah, so long. I actually listened to that on audio tape for like three months. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Selection number three. From the time I came to the palace as a child, each morning and evening I exchanged letters of greeting with my parents, and many of those letters should have remained with my family. However, upon my departure, my father cautioned me, it is not right that letters from the outside should be scattered about the palace. Nor would it be proper for you to write of anything at length aside from simple words of greeting. Hmm. I believe this is Oscar Wilde's letters from prison <laughs> to his lover. About the troubles? About the troubles. Any, you're bring up the Irish we troubles. apparently do not know when they took place, by the way. <laughs> um, okay. It takes place in India. I'm saying, I, I feel India. Interesting. I feel China. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, Forbidden City. I'm, maybe I'm just thinking of the. Where's Siam from The King and I? That's Thailand. Hmm. I'm getting a real Yol Brenner feeling <laughs> to this. <laughs> All right, keep going. This is interesting. I feel like it's it's obviously not contemporary. It doesn't take place contemporarily. So, okay, so what is the logic here? This kid brings letter to letters to his parents from the outside uh the idea is that the narrator um was exchanging letters of greeting with his or her parents and then her father his father the father cautioned him her I think it's a girl <laughs> it's a she. the father cautioned her <laughs> to not leave letters uh, scattered around the palace so basically she was cut off from her family by being at the palace okay I feel like it's India, I, like I said before, because there's something about the, well, hold on. Are there, were there kingdoms in India? I have absolutely no clue. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, hmm. Maybe we could also have a show called Literary Western Civ, where I'm retaught everything I should, have, I should have learned in college. The history of the world, I, the geography. <laughs> India is not Thailand. <laughs> For instance, Yul Brenner has nothing to do with actual Thailand. Well, all right. I know, though, why you think it is Indian is because it has... I've read a lot of contemporary Indian fiction, and it has a certain, like, high-minded voice and style that it sounds like this has. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, An elevated voice and Mm -hmm. a lot of detail. Let me add a wrinkle. Nonfiction. Oh, okay, oh. awesome. All right. All right. Okay, yes. This is my favorite wrinkle. Um, 
Mm, non-fiction. And you guys are we're, we're right, going in the Asian direction. This is all very, you're right. So keep going. I want to hear what you think this is about. I think it's about a young woman in Asia sure. writing letters yes. that are that, forbidden that is literally out of the what the first <laughs> paragraph is about. Oh, right. So I got that nailed. Okay. Um, and the language is so modern then that this book must in some way address the changing perspectives uh, of her generation versus her parents. It's got to mm-hmm. be a coming-of-age story right. where she no longer wants to be in the palace or doesn't value whatever this palace situation is. Is there an alien abduction at all? No. To it? Um, <laughs> is it a love story? That's not what it's about, though. If it's, I mean, if it's nonfiction, that means this has got to be a memoir about encompassing a huge portion of her life. Yeah. Whoever this woman I, is. Yes, I agree with Julia. Thank you, Todd. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we got Asian. We got uh, coming of age, palace. Memoir. 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 Oh my God. Anything else you guys want to add or think about? Or? Uh, I think it takes place post-World War II. Me too. Well, you are wrong in that. Oh. Oh. Uh, it actually takes place at the end of the 18th century. This is the memoir of 1795. Oh, wow. It comes from the memoirs of Lady Hia Zhang, the autobiographical writings of a crown princess of 18th century Korea. Why the fuck do you have this book? Be- because this book is amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's brilliant. It's actually a, a classic book. So it's a crazy, crazy story. And... I highly recommend this book, seriously. Um, so she was nine years old when she got basically married to the crown prince of Korea. Hmm. And the book follows her as she, you know, it's her memoir. So it's it's three different memoirs that she wrote later on in life. But it starts with her at nine years old entering the palace and basically getting cut off from her family to the point where her uncle and someone else two of her relatives get killed by the king. And then the, the, the prince that she is betrothed to goes insane. And in the course of their marriage, uh, he get, keeps getting more and more abusive and crazy till he's literally killing servants left and right. Oh my gosh. And he's going completely insane. And this, this is, is Game of Thrones. This is Game it's, of Thrones. Yeah, it's the real Game of Thrones. But Korea. Historically, wow. what ended up happening was um, his father locked him in a rice chest for eight days until he died. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like one of the most brutal inter-family palace struggles in history. It's Prince Sato is the guy that she's married to, and when when Sato was twenty-seven years old, the king ordered him to enter a rice chest, and the chest was sealed, and Prince Sato died eight days. How later. big is a rice so chest that you can survive for eight days? Four feet by four feet by. Four oh my feet. god. It's like the worst way to die, but the the guy, the kid, the prince was basically going schizophrenic, mm. like he was losing his mind. And she had a child with him already at that point. Oh, God. So it's just this incredible story of her at nine years old being betrothed to another nine-year-old and then that them growing up together and this, this kid who becomes the prince going crazy and his relationship with his father exacerbating to the point where the father kills him, uh, has him executed because of the fact that he's been killing people and he's been, like, beating women. It's awful. It's like a how, crazy... How did, you, how did you find this book? Uh, I read it in a class in school. 
but it's a pretty classic book. I mean, I'm, I, I actually thought maybe Julia would have heard of it because uh, it seems kind of up your alley, Julia. I got really close. Uh, I got close. Yeah, you did. No, you guys got Asian Palace. And I mean, it is a coming of age story, especially this part of the memoir. And it's really about the tension that she feels between her new palace family and her, you know, real family and how this palace life at first just cuts her off from the world and then how insane it gets within the palace walls and how crazy the king and his son are. It's a really, really interesting book. And, you know, for this woman to be writing about just being a woman in that period, let alone being the sort of princess of Korea, yeah. like, it's in, it's insane. It's a really, really great book. And, you know, it's it's such a personal, intimate perspective uh, on something that's really tragic and that it actually happened, you know. And, and to think that there are... It's it's Shakespearean in a way, you know. Yeah. When you really think about it, like and, the, like the Game and so of Thrones she wrote this. Quality. She wrote this in the eighteen hundreds about something that happened to her within the last yeah. twenty years. Wow. Was it her diary? Well, no, I think she wrote it when she. Yeah, I mean, she wrote it when she, I think she was older, like in her sixties. Huh. But um, yeah, it's a great book. It's I am really... definitely going to read that. Tell us the title again, writer. The Memoirs of Lady Hyejong, which I am sure I am pronouncing incorrectly, but um, we can put a link. But it's uh, it's a great book. Definitely worth checking out. Awesome. Cool. Good one. I don't know if I got proper props, by the way, for getting Carter beats the devil out the box. Uh, we'll go back and be like, wow, you're amazing. Wow, Todd. Here, Todd, I'll give this to you since we're recording. Here. Oh, my God, Todd, that is an amazing guest. You are a genius. A genius. So Ryder can edit that in if he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should just be like our go-to if someone has to cough or sneeze. That's the sound it makes. Is... Oh, my God, Todd. You are such a genius. Well, I just want to... Number one, I, I got to thank God. You know, I put, I put a lot of faith in God when I make these guesses. I want to thank my family. I want to thank my mom and my okay, dad. That's, that's um, good. Yeah. Just, uh, Jesus himself pointed you to Carter beats the devil. <laughs> Beat that devil, Todd. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Our theme song is by Sean Fox, remixed by Brett Marshall Lefferts. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literarydisco. Follow us on Twitter, at literarydisco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things. Thanks for listening.